Welcome to Eat Blog Talk, where food bloggers come to get their fill of the latest tips, tricks, and insight into the world of food blogging. If you feel that hunger for information, we'll provide you with the tools you need to add value to your blog, and we'll also ensure you're taking care of yourself because food blogging is a demanding job. Now, please welcome your host, Megan Porta. Hey, food bloggers. Do you ever get caught up in the confusion about how in the world you are going to make money? Take the free quiz I've put together for you that is going to help you get to the bottom of this problem. Go to eatblogtalk.com forward slash quiz to find out which stream of revenue is the next perfect one for you. Your results will be personalized based on your answers, and they will provide you with action steps and resources that will help you launch into monetizing your blogging business in a new way. There are truly so many ways to make money as a food blogger, so don't waste another second. Again, go to eblogtalk.com forward slash quiz and get started on your next revenue stream today. Hey guys, just reminding you to head over to iTunes if you haven't already to subscribe, rate, and review Eat Blog Talk. It adds value to this podcast when you do that, and I would be so grateful for your time. It will take two minutes, press pause, go do it, and come back and keep listening. What's up, food bloggers? Welcome to Eat Blog Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I have Shruti Baskaran with me from urbanfarmy.com, and we are going to talk about six lessons she has learned going from zero to 75K sessions in 15 months with just SEO. Shruti has been a food blogger since March 2020 and has grown her blog to 75,000 sessions in under a year while working a full-time job, often 70 plus hour work weeks, which is, ah, that's crazy. (laughs) Um, In Shruti's professional life, she works on food systems and agricultural development issues in various parts of the world. And she has lived, worked, and traveled to 60 plus countries through that work. Um, Also, she has two graduate degrees from Stanford, one of which is on food systems. She is a foodie and a farmie, which is the genesis of her blog, Urban Farmie. She blogs about seasonal, global, vegetarian recipes and recently forayed into blogging about growing your own food as well. Oh, you have... I just love your bio, Shruti. There's so many things there going on. You're like a multifaceted, awesome human. So I'm excited to chat with you today. And thank you for joining me, by the way. But we all want to hear your fun fact before we dig in. (laughs) Thank you for having me on, Megan. Um, My fun fact actually has something to do with the 60 plus countries that I've worked in and traveled to. Um, I happen to collect both cookbooks and wine bottles from all of the places that I've been to. Um, And so now I have a collection of over 150 cookbooks and over 350 bottles of wine sitting in my, in my garage in a, uh, in a fridge. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Okay. So when are you going to dive into the wine? (laughs) (laughs) Someday, someday let's get the food blog, you know, up and running fully first was the thought process behind that. And is there a bottle of wine that you're most excited to drink? I am. Uh, there. So when I used to live in Italy, um, I had the opportunity to visit this vineyard, which is which no longer produces wine. It was like their last batch. And it's a vineyard that's been around for over 250 years. Um, and I, you know, on a whim, bought a really nice bottle of Sangiovese, which is one of my favorite wines. Um, I actually bought a case of it. 
And I'm getting married in February. And so we're going to open the case at our rehearsal dinner. So I'm super excited for that. Oh, well, congrats on the upcoming wedding. And what better time to open an amazing case of wine? That is so awesome. I bet that's going to feel and taste so good. Absolutely. (laughs) Oh, love that. Well, you have a wild success story, Shruti. You have gone from zero to 75,000 sessions in a relatively short amount of time, which is awesome. Um, So I know everyone listening is going to be really intrigued to hear your story. So you have six points or six lessons that you want to talk through um, about how you made that happen. So I would just love to dig right in. And why don't you just start with lesson number one? Yeah, for sure. Lesson number one is probably the least sexy of all the lessons, but probably the kind of necessary but insufficient condition for making sure that you can reap the benefits of SEO. And that's to get the technical side right. Um, In a strange way, so my background is actually in engineering. And so I was kind of drawn to this side of things to get stuff figured out even before I launched uh, a bunch into the content. But one lesson I learned super early is that regardless of how good your blog is, if it's going to load super slowly or, you know, if your images are not really optimized, if your host is not good, uh, if you have a bunch of like, you know, funky fonts and whatever else, it will get dinged by Google and it actually really doesn't matter how good your content might be. Uh, and that was like a big wake up call. Um, and, you know, a bunch of like podcasts and you've, you've done a bunch of podcasts on these pieces. Uh, and I also like looked up a bunch of other kind of seminars and things like that to really try to get stuff going. Um, and that's made a huge difference. Yeah. And it's not the side of blogging that we necessarily get into blogging for, right? Like we don't get into blogging thinking, oh, I want to dig into <laughs> yeah. SEO and understand page speed and which host is a good host and how my theme is going to you know, operate. Those are not things we get into the business for, but thinking about them is super important. And I also think it's important to point out that there are a lot of free resources that can help you with this side. If you're listening and you're thinking, I have no idea where to start with this, start with this podcast. Go back in the archives. Basically, anytime you see SEO in the title, go listen to that. And there's so much good information. Do you have other insights as far as like where people should get their information from about this topic? I was definitely going to say your podcast because that's where I started. (laughs) Um, The other thing that I found super helpful were the recent series of the top hat rank seminars that I think, you know, Casey and Andrew Wilder um, have like, you know, a couple of other folks were all doing. I think it was a series of several like lessons over many, many months now uh, since the pandemic started. I thought that was a really great kind of bite-sized chunk of you can just you don't need to tackle everything at once but you know just even making a list of all of the technical pieces you need to get right and then kind of working your way through that could be really beneficial for the blog top hat rank webinars are amazing and I do recommend I'm going to second what you just said I'm just going to back that up because all you have to do is understand like one thing at a time and if you're if you stumble on one thing and you're like, I have no idea what this means, dig into that and then learn the next thing and just keep showing up at those webinars or on podcast episodes and eventually it is going to make sense. So don't let the overwhelm just completely stop you. So thank you for that. Do you have anything more on that before we move on to point two? No, I I mean, I think 
people will probably have different issues when it comes to technical things, you know, like some people might have started out with the right host, but then maybe they're on a bad theme or some people might have the right theme and the plugins and all of that. But then maybe they just didn't realize that they were uploading all their images as PNG files, which is what I was doing. Uh, That was not a good (laughs) start to my blogging career, if you will. But soon recognized that, you know, I needed to do image compression and I needed to like, you know, export it a certain file size and so on and so forth. So I think it it will really depend on how much you've already absorbed some of the content that's available out there. But making sure you get that checklist and, you know, check stuff off is going to be super important. And can I just tell you a big thing that I did wrong for up until very recently that I hope to maybe eliminate from someone else's list of problems. Um, All of my image sizes were were sized wrong. So you're supposed to size them at 1200 pixels wide. All of mine were sized at 850 pixels wide. And I did that for a lot of years. So like I'm talking thousands of images that I am currently going back through and resizing. So just wanted to mention that. Don't do that. (laughs) Don't do what I did. (laughs) Totally understand that. Um, And also, like, I do think that to some degree, Google keeps changing too, right? Like, I'm sure... 850 was probably the the size they recommended plus a buffer maybe a couple of years back. And I know you've been blogging for a really long time. Um, but then now it's like, you know, we need to do it 1200 in order to kind of stay ahead of the trend and make sure, you know, you don't have to go back and resize everything. But so and true. A- And that's a good reason to save your original images. So thank God I did this. I have no idea why or like if there was like a little whisper in my ear that said save your original images, but I did. I have all of my originals. So whatever, um, whatever that is, pixels, I don't know for sure right off the top of my head. But now I can just go back and access those original images and resave. But I can't imagine what I would have done if... I didn't have those originals. So that's another. Oof. <laughs> yeah. Oof <laughs> is right. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What is your second lesson? So the next thing I think that I did pretty early on, and this wasn't super intentional, but I think I kind of stumbled into it. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a second is I defined my blog niche, but also blog principles pretty early on when I started blogging. And I think that in a kind of convoluted way, helped me write for my user more than myself. Uh, And what I mean by that is that it's so easy to kind of get tripped up in yourself when you start a blog. And of course, like that's part of the charm, right? Because we have something to share and we want to get our stories out there. But what I recognized pretty early on in, you know, kind of listening to your podcast and like kind of following a bunch of other kind of articles and forums was that in order to kind of set this up as a business, you really have to think about serving the user first. But at the same time, you can, you know, forget about what's your kind of unique perspective or flavor. Um, and so I kind of started calling these like my blog principles, uh, which actually, you know, I have them like printed out and I have them on my like board where I like usually have my uh, recipe ideas and so on. But it's essentially like three to four bullets that are kind of like a litmus test. You know, every time you want to make a recipe, you want to or in my case, every time I get really drawn to something I seen on Instagram and I'm like, oh, my God, I should totally post that, too. 
I'm like, well, you know, that doesn't really work with my blog principles. <laughs> like I'm a vegetarian blog, but I don't use fake meat products, even though, you know, I think they're really attractive posts to write and I have nothing against them, you know, from a principle perspective. It's just I don't enjoy eating them. Uh, and the other part of it is, I mean, I'm super allergic to cucumbers, which is like a really random allergy to have. But a principle that I set up for myself is that I would never post something that I personally can't enjoy. So there are zero cucumber recipes on my blog. Uh, but, you know, this might change over time. But I think that set of like a couple of bullets that just says, hey, like, here are the things that I want to talk about can really help you have almost like a filtering mechanism every time you come up with a new idea. Uh, but from more from like an interest perspective, of course, there's all all the keyword stuff and so on, which we'll get into later. But this is more from still reflecting your perspective and your kind of niche and your flavor on your blog. I love that you do that. I feel like more of us need to do that, especially early on when a lot of us started blogging. <laughs> we were just like, well, this is really popular on Pinterest, even though it was like some weird recipe that maybe we would never have made otherwise. But we did it because everyone else was doing it. And we kind of get into that herd mentality, like, you know, I've got to do what everyone else is doing. But I love that you have set these boundaries for yourself. And I like that you call them principles, too. And you don't go outside of that. So you're not making cucumber recipes just because it's a wildly popular um, trend. You're sticking to who Shruti is. And I think that is to be admired. Yeah, and I think it's helped, especially at the start, right? Because obviously, like, I have big blogs that I follow for inspiration. And sometimes it's easy to be like, well, they're posting it. But you know what, they have like, years of experience, tens of thousands of backlinks and a whole bunch of other stuff going for them that I don't. Um, and so to imagine that, you know, if I post a similar or a take on certain recipes that it would compete against someone who just has a lot more authority, uh, it's not, it, it sometimes happens, but it's not something you can take for granted. So I, in a strange way, that's what I was saying earlier, like the principles have actually helped me figure out like what are the, you know, it's a, it's a kind of backwards way of trying to tell Google like, hey, like, here's the stuff that I am an expert on and you should rank me over other people because these are the only things I write about. Hmm. I was just thinking about like, oh gosh, this was probably year three-ish or so when there were like waves of these food trends that would run through bloggers' um, content. And one of them was the unicorn cake. <laughs> and I wish I could think of more examples, but like one person did a unicorn cake and then everyone did it. And we would just put little spins on it and make it a little bit unique. Um, another one was the rainbow cake. So like the different layers with different colors of rainbow. I think I have one of those somewhere on my blog. And yeah, it's so funny, but we all were like, oh, so this is the next trend. This is what I'm supposed to do next. And we would do it like we were a bunch of lemmings just following each other. But now it's so different. Like we need to just like be yourself and stay true to who you are. Do you have other examples of principles? So you mentioned a couple of your principles, but what can other people kind of think through when they're forming their own principles? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, one of the other pieces is that, you know, the the genesis of my blog, and, and this speaks a lot. So I'm Indian, my partner is, my fiance is Nigerian, and I've spent a ton of time in all of these different countries. And so one of the other principles that I've generally tried to work on is that anytime I post uh, recipes that are not from my own culture or from my partner's culture, I'm, I only post them if I know for sure that they are authentic recipes. Usually I would reach out, like if I wanted to post an Italian recipe, I, and especially if I call it authentic blank, <laughs> um, I try to reach out to people and I try to credit them and so on. And so I think, and there are many, many recipes from cultures where, you know, ideally like you kind of want to spotlight the people that are the true experts and it comes from their culture. So I've been trying to do more of that, but that's also another principle. Like how do I determine where I might be able to add value? Um, and of course this doesn't always apply for every single recipe, right? Because there are some that are very kind of culturally focused and then there are others where it's like, yeah, I'm going to write a recipe on how to grill asparagus. I don't think that necessarily uh, speaks to like authenticity. I think anyone and at the end of the day, like food is love and you want to share and you want to like celebrate people's cultures. But that's another principle. Um, so that I mean, translating that to how you might apply that for yourself, like just having um, having an honest kind of reflection um, around what are the types of recipes or what are the cultures or what are the kind of, you know, cuisines that you want to draw from and having a perspective on how that could connect to your own experience is is also super valuable. I think that gives people so many great things to think through, but having those principles, I think, is a really great idea. Love that you do that. Um, okay, what is your third lesson, Shruti? Building on this theme of narrowing down, <laughs> one of the bigger things that I decided early was to just focus on one thing at a time. Um, you know, I think people have this perception that food bloggers are like, just chilling you know you like cook something and you take a picture and then you throw it on a blog and oh my god like they're making so much money oh I hate ads you you see this all the time but very early into like starting my food blog I realized just how many hats we have to wear you know you are the recipe developer you're the marketing expert you're the photographer you're the technical person and at least when you start out like most people don't have you know, teams of people to take care of all of these things. And there's always new shiny objects. That was the other part of it, right? Like there's TikTok and there's Instagram Reels and there's Clubhouse and there's YouTube Shorts and yada, yada, yada. Like it's never ending. But the the real constraining factor for me is that I have a pretty, you know, rigorous full-time job that I work on average at least 60 like hours a week. Sometimes it's 80. I don't really know. And so... It was important to, and I, I mean, I love my job, but I think it like forced the constraint that I couldn't be all of everything all the time. And so just setting, and for me, the one thing that I focused on at the beginning was to set up a workflow to just get the quality content out on a regular cadence. <clears throat> and for me, that meant focusing just on SEO, like nothing else. You know, occasionally, I mean, I post on Instagram, I sometimes post on Facebook, I try to keep up with Pinterest, but who knows what Pinterest is up to on a day to day basis. Um, but I think I really interpreted SEO as understanding how Google interprets user intent. 
you know, so basically it was like looking at what the users want using Google as a proxy. And once I started thinking that way, it just completely like reversed my workflow. And, you know, as I think the the title of the episode suggested, like I was actually able to go to 75,000 sessions in just 15 months, which I would have never in my wildest dreams set as the target. Yeah, I think that's solid advice to just focus on one thing at a time. And you mentioned this a little bit, but uh, Pinterest seems to be kind of a wild card these days. So a previous version of Megan would have told you to go the Pinterest route because I found huge success there. But things seem to be changing, kind of volatile at times, depending on when you ask me. <laughs> yeah. um, and although like, you know, Google does throw us some curveballs, but... It does seem to be the most consistent form of traffic if you can nail it and if you can stay current too. So we talked earlier about like figuring out where you need to show up in order to learn about the technical side and about SEO. So do that, but don't just do it once, do it regularly, keep learning about it from the people who really know it. Um, and change is needed. But I think that's kind of like the, the one place that people feel like they can go and you know, find consistent, fairly consistent results. Do you think that too? I, I definitely think so. I think it's important to balance that with the perspective that SEO at the end of the day is still a zero sum game, right? Because there can only be one person who's occupying rank number one on Google for a specific keyword, for instance. But there are enough keywords that, you know, you don't have to like take to heart if like you're not ranking for, I don't know, like, fettuccine alfredo like that's okay like there's probably 7000 variations of fettuccine alfredo that people are searching for right like fettuccine alfredo without cream or whatever else that i think you could carve out like a section of google for yourself by making sure that you're like you know doubling down on the focus making sure that you're posting stuff that google will soon come to recognize you as the authority for and i think that creates a path where you can slowly kind of expand um, and try to like keep up that consistency of traffic, or at least that's been true in my case. And that is that makes a great case for becoming a th an authority in specific areas and like building content around that too. And I think that's becoming more of a theme in our world. So this just makes a great case for that because Google is going to see you and any content you build around that around that theme, you know, it's going to prioritize it. Okay, what is your next lesson? This is probably the most important thing out of all of my lessons, which was to really marry your content calendar and your keyword research. And what I mean by that is instead of cooking the recipes that I wanted to cook and then trying to find keywords to optimize it, I built a content calendar that passes what I call a keyword sniff test. Um, and so I basically like completely reversed my workflow in some ways. Uh, but I think of course, like at the end of the day, then that doesn't mean that I'm like just making recipes where the keywords are helpful. I do have kind of a um, a setup where I allow myself the freedom and the flexibility to like post a certain amount of recipes that I really just don't care about SEO. I'm just doing it because I, I wanted to post a specific recipe or I was feeling creative or whatever. But I think having my blog principles on the one side and then doing this like keyword sniff test and kind of like making sure that I was doing the keyword research before I cooked or posted a recipe has, I think, been the most important aspect of um, 
or at least how I interpret like the most important aspect of being able to hit where I have landed in terms of traffic. Oh, I think that's so smart. And it sounds like you have such a balance because you do have your principles that you stand by. Yet you do. I love that you call it a keyword sniff test. I think that's so perfectly explains that. So how do you balance that? Like, do you allow yourself wiggle room for how many posts a month or how many posts per whatever to just do whatever you want? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think last year I was kind of planning this by quarter, but for this year, I basically have most of the planning completed for the year. Um, I think it started out by saying, what's the goal for publishing a high quality recipe every week? Um, And so I said, you know what, knowing my life (laughs) and the fact that I'm planning a wedding and all of these random things in my in my in my work side of things, um, I committed to doing one recipe a week. And many times I've actually exceeded that. But I told myself that's my ambition. So that's 60 posts a year or so, right? Um, But then I actually identified 75 or 80 ideas, um, mostly evergreen, some are seasonal. And then I found, you know, I, I just have like a blank spot for like 10 to 15 ideas that I was like, you know what, I don't know, two weeks from now, I might want to do something because I have so many tomatoes in my garden, and I don't want to look at keywords. And so that way, I kind of land at like slightly more than one recipe a week over the course of time, you know, if I'm, if I have a lot of time during breaks or something, I do multiple, sometimes I'm only able to do one, but I think it really gives myself the wiggle room to say, here is the set of content that's like well researched and it's like really SEO driven and here's kind of a buffer list which is you know basically kind of like whatever I feel like doing (laughs) yeah that's so awesome and I just want to point this out I see in your notes you wrote that you set a timer to make a yes or no decision on keywords for each recipe I love that (laughs) oh my gosh that's brilliant because then you know it's coming and you're not like you know, 60 minutes later, you're like, wait, what, I don't know what I'm doing and like waffling at all. You know, it's five minutes and you, that's the amount of time you have to make the decision. So smart. Yeah, and I also batch process it. So this is what I was I was saying is my like keyword sniff test. <laughs> uh, but I basically use keywords everywhere and Ahrefs, but I've heard key search is excellent. It's just I've I was used to using Ahrefs because I signed up for a free trial at some point and I just really fell in love with it. But essentially I just like start out by saying, okay, here's my, you know, rough idea of something. I don't know, like grilling asparagus. And then I like look for combinations and then I say, what's a reasonable search volume that I want this recipe to have? And usually nowadays I target somewhere between a thousand to 2000. And then I also look for stuff that's not super competitive. Meaning if I Google the keyword and if the first five or so entries are all like, major websites or blogs that are like, you know, they've been around for years and years and years and probably don't have a chance of out competing them, then I say, you know what, okay, this is good. Like I check the box and I move on. Five minute timer, make a go or no go decision. And if the timer runs out while I'm doing it, I usually just make a split second decision and I just put it in a box and I move on. I think the big takeaway is to like, prevent overthinking by time boxing. And this way I end up usually validating somewhere between eight and 10 recipes in like an hour, which makes a huge you know, difference because now I have 10 things where I've like 
looked up, you know, yes, it passes the keyword sniff test. It is like optimal. And now I can go into recipe, like, you know, writing and development and taking pictures and all that jazz. This is a theme that I implement all the time in my business as well. I don't do the five minutes on that, but I think I'm going to start now because you've inspired me. But every single task that we do in our businesses and in our lives really will fill the amount of time that we give it. So if I sit down without thinking that there's a certain time for keyword research, it will fill hours, right? But if you give it five minutes, it will fill five minutes. And I always encourage people, like if there's a task, like for example, like writing your blog posts, I feel like that takes people so long, myself included. Take the time that it normally takes you to write a blog post, cut it in half and see if you can do it. If it normally takes you three hours to write a blog post, sit down, set a timer for an hour and a half, you're most likely going to get it done. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I want to hear lesson number five, Shruti. This has also, this follows in the theme of like optimizing the process. But one thing that's been super helpful for me is that I've made a recipe. I've made a recipe post template in WordPress. But I also have a kind of process that I follow for every single blog post that I write. Um, And as a result, I think I've actually reduced and without obviously like, you know, I don't count taking the photos or editing the photos in, in this bucket, but I can go from start to finish on a blog post in an hour, um, assuming that I have the photos ready. And it's 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 an evolution, right? Like I think I started somewhere like two and a half hours and then over the course of time, it's just made it so much more easy um, to stay like exactly what you're saying. Like it will expand to occupy the time you give it. So if you give it less of time, you actually end up with a relatively good quality of content for half the amount of time that you thought you would spend on it. Yeah. The recipe post template is brilliant and it's super helpful because otherwise I feel like you're just wildly putting content together. Um, How do you recommend that people land on a template? Because I know there are so many different ways to compile a blog or a recipe post. So what are your thoughts on that? Totally. Casey Markey, I think, has excellent suggestions here and he is always consistent in what he suggests. So I think I've kind of just co-opted that into what works for me. I typically do some kind of an introduction, ingredients with a focus on making sure that I call out like variations or substitutions, um, especially since I do a lot of kind of like, you know, random cuisines and so on that a lot of people might not have previously cooked before. So I like try to provide substitutions as much as possible in that section. And then I go into the process and the tips. um, And then there's a conclusion and a recipe card. Um, and then, I mean, that really is kind of like the post that I have saved in WordPress. And every time I create a new post, I just duplicate that and kind of start, um, whenever I have to like write a new recipe, but there's also a process that I follow alongside this particular template to make sure that I'm to, you know, figure out what I'm going to fill in, in each of those sections. It's amazing how fast you can fill in that information when you've got a template set and when you've done it over time you know, time and time again. It, I almost feel like I'm cheating when I sit down to, because right now I'm <laughs> I'm basically just like redoing my content. I'm really not publishing a whole lot of new stuff, but I have a lot of old stuff in my archives that needs this new format. So I do go through a lot and I put these elements into place, exactly what you said. So introduction, ingredients, process tips, conclusion, all of that. And sometimes I get done 
so quickly that I'm like, oh, was that was that okay? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> did I just? But it is like I look back through it. I'm like, yeah, I I did it. But if you just do that and get in the process of doing it and get in that magic flow and do it over and over and over, pretty soon you are going to be doing it in no time. Anything else you have on that? There's a couple of things that come to mind. I. Usually, like, let's say, you know, I'm writing a chana masala recipe, I will also look up, like, alternative keywords. So, for instance, to say Indian chickpea curry, um, or, you know, pindi chana, or whatever it is. Um, and then I will make sure that I go through my post and I, like, kind of, if it has, like, a, a, you know, if it's a variation of a recipe, I will include it and so on, just to make sure that I'm kind of covering my bases in terms of, like, specific other keyword alternatives, because you never know what Google actually picks up. And of course, there's like, you know, the keyword that you think it's going to rank for. And then there have been so many times when some of my posts rank for something like that I didn't even realize they included in the post. And it's like, bringing me like 1000s of page views, that you know, a month. And I'm like, wow, that that's interesting. I should do that more intentionally. <laughs> Yes, totally. We all have those, right? Where it's like, whoa, that actually took off. I had no idea. But then we also have the flip side where we think something is going to be super popular and it tanks, like nothing happens. (laughs) (laughs) You never quite know. You just have to release it into the air and see what happens. Um, All great stuff. Okay, we're already on your sixth lesson, Shruti. So tell us what that is. This is the last one, which is, you know, ads and SEO. And like, of course, like at the end of the day, like we're talking about optimizing SEO because you want to monetize. And I personally haven't monetized my blog at the moment because of some personal slash work permission related reasons, but it's on the cards in a few months. But the last lesson is probably the most important in the sense that Google updates will wreck you at some point. It will, 100%. It really doesn't matter what you do, how prepared you are, because there's just no, like, I mean, in general, the trend is Google makes their search process and what they prioritize and what they show more and more user-friendly, accounting for user intent and all of that, but it will wreck you. You just need to shake it off and move on. I mean, in my own case, in the last two months, my Google search console, like, literally looks like a roller coaster. There's like huge spikes sometimes that lead to like 4,000 visits a day. And then there's like a huge drop. And then like, you know, my page views like our sessions goes down to like a thousand a day. And then it's back up and then it's back down. And then when you, especially when you combine that against to some degree, you know, the summer slump, the fact that people are getting out of the pandemic and, but then going back into lockdown, coming out again, like it's just, there's just going to be you know, there will be variations and some Google update will probably go south for you. But at the end of the day, you have to figure out what quality content means for yourself. And instead of thinking that Google is doing something to you, if you think of Google's guidelines as basically, you know, a cheat sheet of what you need to do in order to serve your user, meaning Google is almost like a translator, you know, that's taking the collective audience of millions of people and saying, here's what they're searching for. And here are the things that we have found that those users are, you know, optimizing or preferring. Your life just becomes easier over time. And I realize that's easier to say when, you know, a portion of your income perhaps doesn't depend necessarily on the SEO piece, but, 
I think that stability, and this is where I think once you build up your SEO to a point where you have your process down, you kind of have your keyword research down, you have like, here's, you know, you have a good grasp of it. And that's where you can start diversifying to make sure you are adding other income streams so that you're not relying completely on one thing. Amen to all of that. That was so well said. And I feel like it should be an introductory course into becoming a food blogger. Everyone should have to go through this where they check the box that says, I clearly understand that at some point I'm going to be wrecked by Google and or Pinterest. And you know, like that is a part of the journey. And you don't learn that right off the bat. Unfortunately, you learn it the hard way when you see your traffic going up, up, up in a nice direction. And then something happens and it tanks and then you're devastated. I've been there so many times. Totally. And I think it's so easy to get disillusioned, right? But I mean, coming back to like SEO versus some of the other like traffic sources, one of the interesting things about SEO is that Google makes it super transparent. You know, if you actually go and read Google's like webmaster guidelines or whatever, it's like, here's how we're doing this. Here's the, here's what we're asking our human raters to do, right? And and that information is available to everybody, even if everybody's not always, you know, people, I think, try, like, I have read that document, I think it's like 150 pages. I've read it at least three or four times, start to finish. Um, and I know it seems real. I think, you know, people like Casey and like your podcast, like you've had several guests, like all do a really good job of kind of distilling it down to the core facets. But I think reading the document actually helps in terms of like understanding how Google frames this problem, right? Because at the end of the day, like they're also trying to do things to make sure that they are staying the most relevant. Um, and so I think with SEO, like there's, there is a generally accepted right way of doing things and a generally accepted not so right way of doing things. And if you mostly follow that, I think you should be good. But I don't know, like I've hit 75,000 sessions, but my like, if you look at my analytics and search console over the last couple of months, I'm like, wow, this is like insane. You know, it goes to like 85,000 and then it drops to 60,000. And if I'm like literally translating that into like dollars, that's a that's a pretty significant difference, right? In terms of how much you're making in a given month. Um, but I think you just have to kind of, uh, that's the point. Like, I think once you hit a point where you're, you've established like a baseline of here's what I can expect from SEO and it's going to go up, like you can then start diversifying. Uh, I still haven't figured out what that diversification is going to be for me specifically, because Pinterest is, you know, they're doing their own thing. Uh, Facebook is interesting. (laughs) Instagram is not really a traffic driver. So I'm trying to figure that out. But, you know, now, uh, after having hit like, you know, 50, 75,000 sessions. Yeah, well, I think advertising is usually typically the first thing that people try to nail. And then from there, it's, you know, you've got like some sort of baseline coming in with revenue, even if it does go up and down, depending on the season. And then you can kind of extend your um, energy and start creating other streams of revenue. But a lot of people really, really, really strive to get those ads first. But it doesn't have to be that way. You could launch into brand work and do things that don't require um, a lot of traffic. So there are other options. And actually, I have put together a quiz. It's not fully done 
at the time we're speaking, Shruti, you and I, but by the time this episode is actually published, it will be for sure. It's free and you just like go through the quiz and you can see what your main source of revenue should be based on how you answer the questions. So it, it's like a super fast three minute quiz, but it takes you through a lot of questions to kind of determine what your next focus should be. So that might be helpful for you or anyone listening who's like, I have no idea how to make money. I know there are options, but I don't know which option to pursue. So just something I wanted to mention there quick. A little plug. (laughs) Oh my God. That sounds amazing. And I will 100% be taking this quiz as soon as it's available. (laughs) Yeah. And you can, if you want to find it, it's at eblogtalk.com forward slash quiz. So actually, Shruti, starting probably tomorrow, you can find it and go through it. And I would love your feedback too. If it's like any feedback is welcome. So please let me know what you think. I will for sure. This has been amazing. And I just want to applaud you for your success in such a fast amount of time. It's so inspiring. And I know that food bloggers listening are going to be encouraged by it. So what would you say of everything you've talked about today, which has all been insanely valuable? What would be the number one thing that you would want food bloggers to walk away from this episode knowing? Oof, that's tough. <laughs> um, I would probably say, think about all of the different pieces that we talked about and figure out how to create your own workflow, incorporating you know the technical components, the keyword research, like the recipe post template and how you fill out. Like I think people tend to work different people tend to work very differently. Like I do really well when I batch process, for instance. So at any given time, once I have my list of eight to 10, let's say recipe ideas that I've made a decision on that I'm going to write, I typically write the draft post um, first. I mean, aside from like the recipe development process, right? Like that tends to stay separate, but occasionally like and I do that because you know at work like if I have a dead time like or if I just have you know if I'm on a flight that's like six hours long or whatever and I can't really do a lot of other things I almost always will be able to just write Um, and I think organizing your workflow in a way that it makes sense to you and in a way that incorporates some of these best practices I think will be the like top takeaway I would say. And that'll take some time to figure out, right? Like you're going to start with something and realize that certain parts are working better than other parts. And it's kind of like making a recipe, right? Like you make it for the first time. You're like, wow, like the bones are here, but it's a little too sweet or ooh, like it could use a little bit of like, I don't know, black pepper, you know, Um, and you tweak it, right? So it's the same thing with coming up with a blogging workflow. Yeah, great advice. Little tweaks every time are going to make it more efficient in the end. I think that is solid advice. Thank you so much for being here. This was an amazing journey to kind of talk through and walk through with you. So we just appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. Yeah. So before you go, as you know, I like to ask all my guests for either a favorite quote or words of inspiration. What do you have for us? (laughs) One of the things, one of the quotes that I actually have, like, on a sticky note that sits on my uh, workstation is by Toni Morrison. Um, And it says, you know, if there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, written yet, you must be the one to write it. 
And that is something that I have taken to heart over time. Um, and I think it is inspirational in the sense that you, there's always a chance to start um, and it's never too late. Um, so I will probably leave you with that as my, not my, but you know, the words of wisdom that I tend to turn to the most when I'm feeling down or if I'm doubting myself and so on. Oh, that's so great. Thank you for sharing that. We will put together a show notes page for you, Shruti. So if anyone wants to go peek at those, you can go to eatblogtalk.com forward slash urban farmy and farmy is spelled with an IE at the end. Tell everyone where they can find you best online, Shruti. Other than my blog, I am probably most active on Instagram and it's just urban farmy. Everyone go check her out. And thanks again for being here, Shruti. And thank you for listening today, food bloggers. I will see you next time. We're glad you could join us on this episode of Eat Blog Talk. For more resources based on today's discussion, as well as show notes and an opportunity to be on a future episode of the show, be sure to head to eatblogtalk.com. If you feel that hunger for information, we'll be here to feed you on Eat Blog Talk. 